Have we entered a new era in global politics? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story, our Thursday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. I am Nicole Roussel, a producer on the Socialist Program, and I'm here with, you guessed it, Brian Becker himself. As listeners and supporters of the show know, Brian is a decades-long organizer for socialism and against war, racism, sexism, mass incarceration, and capitalist oppression of all stripes. Brian, since you're on the road this week, we decided to do something a little different for this week's episode of The Real Story, and something that's more in line with our very exciting, more in-depth monthly seminar for supporters and patrons of the show, which we have every month. But this month, we'll have it on Monday, April 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern, which is 5 p.m. Pacific. And this week's or this month's seminar is entitled The New Era of Global Politics. And today's episode is going to be a little preview to that discussion and the underlying conclusion. And on that note, we want to encourage anyone listening, if you or someone you know, you know, if you like or rely on this show and you're not yet a supporter of the show, please, please become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program. And when you become a patron, it will entitle you to join our monthly seminars where we talk about all kinds of topics. And it also gets you access to past seminars mixed and mastered in podcast form. Becoming a patron is very easy. It takes a minute or two and it makes a huge difference for us. This show is a labor of love and it's a commitment on all of our parts, but we also have to raise the money to do it. So again, to become a subscriber, to join our community, go to patreon.com slash the socialist program. So today, Brian, I'm going to interview you and ask some questions about the current political climate and the current political moment globally. So let's get started. Sure. And thank you, Nicole. Well, we have entered a new era of global politics. And I want to just, in a way, review what would distinguish one era from another era. Why and how can we make the assertion that this is a new era? Let's start with what happened before this. What was the era that we're coming out of, that the war in Ukraine Russia's invasion into Ukraine signals an end of that era. When did it begin? What were its chief characteristic features? And I also want to talk about the era that preceded it, because in order to understand the current crisis in Ukraine, it's extremely important to locate where we are in global politics, but also to recognize that this place that we're in, this sort of intersection politically is also a consequence of what came before. And especially, this is connected to the two previous eras in global politics. Right. Really great points, Brian. And I think, you know, you've been asserting and we've been asserting on the show that the war in Ukraine does signal a new era in global politics. And, you know, that's a big statement. It sounds like a big statement. It is a big statement. But notably, it's not just us saying this. It's not just the socialist program. It's not just you saying this. There are others who are saying much the same thing, but from an entirely different worldview. For example, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, said this explicitly on TV. And we played that clip a couple of weeks ago on our show with Vijay Prashad. But I want to play the clip again before we dive into this discussion, because I just think it's you know, the question of whether this is a new era in global politics is important. And I think from our analysis and from our side, it definitely is. But the fact that the CEO of BlackRock is saying the same thing is is very notable. Here's the clip. You've been through 40 years of market ups, downs, crises. You were a bond trader. You created BlackRock from zero. It's nine trillion. You've seen it all. You were in the middle of the financial crisis. How would you like rate what's going on now with Russia, with inflation, with all the stuff that's going on in Europe with I guess 2008 or any of the other ones. I think this is potentially much broader and, and, and bigger for the global world. Um, since 1990, 
the, with the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, um, the world benefited from this incredible peace dividend. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this peace dividend created opportunities for American firms worldwide. We expanded globally. Right. We, we, you know, we were able to expand and build and, and do amazing things, and as did other countries were able to do that. But also importantly, you know, we raised the standard of living for the entire world. That peace dividend is now over. And this is a big seismic change. We now have to be much more thoughtful about geopolitical issues. I think the biggest implication for the Russian invasion to Ukraine and the, and the right. response is we're all waking up to all these dependencies. Right. Europe was too dependent on Russia, oil, and gas. And every company I'm talking to right now are asking themselves, where are our other dependencies? Such an important clip. And obviously, you know, when he talks about the fact that between 1990 and 91 and and now being a quote unquote peacetime or peace dividend, however he said it, I mean, that was the case that the U.S. was not threatened, but the U.S. was waging war and sanctioning and oppressing nations and countries all over the place, obviously. So we're obviously coming from different points of view. But I think the point remains that this is a new era in global politics. So, Brian, let's talk about that. Yeah, indeed. So we would agree with Larry Fink. Odd, I know. Of course, he's a leading capitalist, one of the leading capitalists and one of the leading capitalist sort of thinkers, so to speak, thinking about world politics and the geostrategic implications of major events, but he cites 1990, 1991, and what he calls the dismemberment of the Soviet Union as the beginning of the era which he now says has come to an end. And on that, we agree with him. This is precisely the era that has now ended. And what is the era? The Soviet Union was overthrown. The government of the Soviet Union was overthrown by forces that came from within the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Boris Yeltsin had been a primary top official inside the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Of course, Gorbachev, who, you know, his policies of glasnost and perestroika and reforms accelerated the the internal sort of unraveling of the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc countries. I don't think Gorbachev precisely was demanding or wanting the the breakup of the Soviet Union, although after the fact, he seemed to celebrate it. But Boris Yeltsin in that wing of the the anti-communists who took over the Russian government and other Soviet republics at the end of the 1980s, they were the ones who collapsed the Soviet Union. They overthrew it, and they had the full support of the United States. They had the full support of NATO. They had the support of all of the European capitalist powers. In fact, there was an attempted coup d'etat against Gorbachev. It was in August 1991, an effort by some sectors of the Soviet establishment to prevent the counter-revolution from happening. And it was really interesting, if you go back to that time period, the U.S. weighed in and said, this is an illegal effort to overthrow the government of the Soviet Union, meaning they were against the overthrow of Gorbachev because they could see that the Gorbachev-Yeltsin axis was the accelerant for the actual ultimate breakup of the Soviet Union. So they didn't want that process to be disrupted by elements within the Soviet establishment who were still loyal to socialism. Really something when you go back and read those documents from 1990. Anyway, this ended the era of the so-called Cold War or what we would call the global class war an era that had in turn started in 1945, right at the very end of World War II. And at the end of World War II, the Soviet Union, which had been the sole, singular, and isolated socialist country, was now joined by socialist governments in Asia and in Europe, the governments of Eastern Europe, Central Europe by 1949, China in 1945, North Korea, North Vietnam, the Soviet Union had sort of broken out of its isolation. And by 1950, two-fifths of the world's population lived in countries whose governments were led by the Communist Party. 
And so you had two camps emerge after World War II, the socialist camp led by the Soviet Union. It was the biggest, strongest economy, the biggest, strongest military within the socialist camp. And it was the anchor. And on the other side, there was the world capitalist camp, which was not only essentially, but in all ways anchored by the United States. I mean, it was the United States that came into Europe at the end of World War II and rehabilitated all of the capitalist countries whose cities were in smoldering ruins by the end of the war, by 1945. The U.S. came in with the Marshall Plan, revived those economies, revived those countries, and not only its allies, it also revived Germany and Italy. It did the same with Japan. Japan had been devastated by World War II, but the U.S. came in, occupied Japan as it did Germany, but instead of imposing Versailles-like sanctions on the defeated adversaries, the U.S. rehabilitated them. So they created a global united front of all of the capitalist countries that in World War II had been at war against each other. Now they were brought together in this united front, this unity led by the United States, and their main goal was to overthrow socialism and to stop revolutions that were led by communist and socialist forces in Asia and Africa and the Middle East and Latin America. So this was the hallmark of the so-called Cold War between 1945 and that era, which is, dominates world politics. And you, you don't have to take a deep dive. You can take a cursory look at politics in that era from 1945 and 1990. And it's completely 100% dominated by that struggle between the two camps. And domestically, in the United States, uh, the struggle also played out with the witch hunt, the anti-communist, anti-socialist witch hunt, whereby all the people who were either in the Communist Party or openly identified with, with socialism were labeled as fifth column traitors operating on behalf of the socialist camp inside the United States. And during those decades, anti-communism was a dominating rule. If you were a communist, you were expelled from your job. If you're a communist, maybe you went to jail, as most of the leaders of the Communist Party did in a trial that began in 1949 and 1950. Uh, many communists and socialists had to leave the country. They went into exile. There was the Hollywood 10 and the complete purge of Hollywood celebrities and cultural figures who identified with socialism or Marxism. There was the purge of the unions. The Communist Party led perhaps one-third of the unions in the United States. Communists were driven out of the unions in the late 1940s and early 1950s. That was the, the period, the era of global politics and its manifestation domestically that went from 1945 to 1990. Now, in 1990, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States was, in a way, shocked. It didn't really not maybe at the very end, it wasn't shocked because everyone could see the collapse was coming by 1989. But certainly they would have been surprised if you had talked to American policymakers in 1981 and said, do you believe the Soviet Union and the socialist camp will disappear in 10 years? None of them would have said yes to that. They would have been very, very shocked and surprised. So this shocking, surprising, sudden development in global politics ended one era and opened the new era. And that's the era that we're now saying is basically ending with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One of the hallmarks of this latest era between 1990 and 2022 is that the United States was able to access huge parts of the world that had previously been off limits for capitalist exploitation. American corporations and American banks were able to set up shop in the former socialist camp, the Soviet Union, Eastern and Central Europe. And of course, that coincided with the opening of China that began in the late 1970s, early 1980s, but really took off in the 1990s, where American and Western capitalist corporations were able to invest and do manufacturing, especially in China. So this huge vast global pool of low-wage labor became accessible to capitalist corporations, most of whom were based either in Western countries or in Japan. 
And at the same time, Russia was so weakened by the overthrow of the Soviet Union, and China was attempting to overcome poverty and the legacy of underdevelopment as its top priority. So neither China or the Russian government in the 1990s meant to try to or did in any way challenge the hegemony, the domination, the global hegemony of U.S. imperialism. So there was a period of the 1990s which was characterized by a vast expanse of available low-wage labor. I mean, I'm talking about the number of workers, low-wage workers in the hundreds of millions who are now available to be essentially exploited by Western capitalist corporations. That was a big shot in the arm for U.S. and Western capitalism. And at the same time, without any geostrategic adversaries that could block or check American domination and American military and economic designs, U.S. hegemony was basically the number one agreed upon consensus position of all factions within the U.S. ruling class foreign policy establishment. Unlike in the Cold War, where there was a struggle between what were called the doves and hawks, between those who wanted all-out confrontation with the socialist camp and those who were promoting the policy of what became known as detente or rapprochement or peaceful coexistence. There was a, a struggle between different factions within the U.S. imperialist establishment over the best policy during that period, 1945 to 1990. But in, this, in the era that comes next, Everyone within the U.S. establishment could see American power was basically undiluted. It was not checked. And the main bigger countries like China and Russia were essentially trying to appease the United States in order to avoid being the target of American wrath and also to be incorporated into the world economy, which again was dominated by the U.S., by the IMF, by the World Bank by American-led capitalist economic institutions. And the U.S. at that time, during that period, when you think about it, they went to war against Yugoslavia, which was an important ally of Russia, and the Russians did nothing. The U.S. bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade during the war in 1999. The Chinese complained and protested, but they didn't essentially do anything about it. Then the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in October 2001, and NATO was the vehicle for the invasion. The Russians and the Chinese didn't really protest that invasion. If anything, they tried to help. The U.S. went to war against Iraq in 2003. The Chinese and the Russians didn't like it. They didn't support it, but they didn't do much to protest against it, and certainly not to try to stop it. Then the United States began the bombing of Libya in 2011 during the Arab Spring, and Russia and China both abstained at the Security Council where they had a veto. So the U.S. was able to ram through a resolution, the United States, Britain, and France were able to put through a resolution in the Security Council authorizing the use of military force on the premise that it would be used to protect Libyan civilians from Gaddafi. And the Russians and the Chinese, who had to know that this was really a regime change operation, they abstained. They did not use their veto power. So again, a period or a policy of appeasement, essentially. And then the United States, having succeeded at toppling the government of Gaddafi, having previously toppled the government in Afghanistan and Iraq, thought, okay, now we're going to do the same thing to Syria and ultimately, they intended to take out Iran. So in this last era, 1990 to 2022, the period where the U.S. expected and anticipated undiluted, unchecked U.S. domination by all of the players in the world, that the U.S. took that as an understanding, that that was the premise of, quote, normal relations between the United States and other big powers like Russia and China. Now, this started to change, especially in 2013, when the Russians decided that's when Putin came back into office as president. The Russians decided that they weren't going to let 
happened to Syria, what happened to Libya. Syria was a primary ally of the Soviet Union and of Russia in the Middle East during the Cold War. The Syrian military largely was based on training and equipment from the Russians in the former Soviet Union. And Putin intervened in Syria at the request of the Assad government and basically laid down a line that said, we're not going to let the U.S. do to Syria what it did to Libya. And in fact, the Russians, with their allies from Iran and Hezbollah in Lebanon, and of course, most importantly, the Syrian Arab army in Syria, they defeated, they thwarted the efforts by the U.S. to carry out regime change in Syria. The Americans were extremely unhappy that for the first time, Russia stood up, really stood up to the United States. And then the next year, within a few months, actually, by the end of 2013, the U.S. and the EU countries, but especially the U.S., was fomenting, supporting, giving direct aid and support to the Maidan protests in Ukraine, all important, most important ally of Russia, Ukraine, huge country, one of the biggest militaries in Europe, a former Republic of the Soviet Union, in the Soviet Union, the second largest republic after Russia. The United States helped overthrow that government in a coup d'etat, ending Ukraine's neutrality. And it was clear from that moment on that Russia was going to protest against the integration of Ukraine into NATO because that would be an existential security threat. So you can see 2013 starts the beginning of the end of this era that began in 1990. And what I think we can see now is that the Russians, after you know patiently trying to come to a negotiated settlement with NATO about the endless expansion of NATO towards Russia, after appeasing the United States for so many years, for some reason, the Russian government decided enough is enough when they said we have red lines and we're not going to let you cross them and Ukraine has to be neutral. We're not going to let it be a staging ground for advanced weapons, including nuclear missiles targeting us on our border, on a very, very long border. When the Russians demanded this and the U.S. basically pretended to negotiate, but instead poured more and more weapons into Ukraine during the past four months, it made it clear to the Putin government that there was never going to be a way to have a negotiated settlement with the United States, and they decided to take this decision to invade Ukraine. Now, as we have said, we did not support the Russian military invasion into Ukraine. We put it into context. We said it's because the U.S. actually is putting Russia in a corner, and we also said that we think the United States and the other NATO powers are quite happy. Certainly, the United States is quite happy with the current situation. Ukrainians are bleeding. Ukrainians are dying. So are Russian soldiers. The Russian economy is completely or almost completely evicted from the world economy. The United States has united Europe around NATO under the U.S. leadership. And so from our point of view, the invasion, the military action of Russia, we don't know ultimately how it will come out. Of course, history is filled with ironies and you know sudden twists and turns. We don't have a crystal ball. But so far, at least, the U.S. is quite happy. The U.S. feels in a much stronger position. They feel Russia is weaker. They feel that Russia being weaker also weakens China. But one of the new and important distinguishing features of what has happened since February 24th, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that the United States, while it has you know, pulled together all the West European capitalist countries and Japan into this anti-Russian united front, the resolution presented at the General Assembly at the UN was, while it passed with an overwhelming number, I think it was 141 to 5 with 35 abstentions, But the 35 who abstained, which Russia would consider to be a diplomatic victory for the most part, maybe not in the case of China, they probably were hoping China would vote no, but China abstained. But you look at who also abstained. I mean, China abstained, India abstained, South Africa abstained, Pakistan abstained. We have a situation where 
the majority of the people of the world are represented by the governments in those countries that were the abstaining countries. So while the U.S. has 141 votes, when you look at a map, it's those votes are concentrated in certain parts of the world, either the West or in the countries that are completely subservient to the West. And all of these other countries are basically establishing a position that's between the United States and Russia rather than openly joining the anti-Russia united front. So it's very interesting. I, I just want to end on this part, Nicole, again, just a signal that this, the era between 1990 and 2022, that era has ended. Russia's decision to break up completely with the United States to try to militarily defeat U.S. NATO plans in Ukraine, that signals the end of an era, and we don't know where the new era leads us. We don't know. We're going to talk about the different possibilities, the different variants. Of course, it's a very dangerous new period, but we know that it's ended, and we don't know how the rest of the world will ultimately shake out in terms of a new alignment. One thing that I want to mention is that and I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal new article, U.S. expands flow of intelligence to Ukraine as White House sends more arms. Extra U.S. aid comes as Ukrainian forces try to hold off a major Russian offensive in the eastern part of Ukraine. The U.S. is sending more advanced weapons to Ukraine, more advanced weapons to other NATO countries. The U.S. is sending thousands of American soldiers into the area not into Ukraine, but all around it. Lloyd Austin, who was the Secretary of Defense, was on virtual conference calls with Ukrainian military officials. The U.S. has been training Ukrainian military. In many ways, the United States is at war with Russia, but American troops and American people are exempted from any of the bleeding. All of the bleeding will be done by Ukrainians and Russians. And so the U.S. is essentially fighting a proxy war against Russia. So when you think about the fact that the U.S. was at first very pro-Boris Yeltsin, then sympathetic to Vladimir Putin, integrated Russia into the G7, it became the G8, with Russia functioning basically as an invited guest, not a real dominant player, obviously, because it was later evicted from the G7. The G8 became the G7 once again. And when you think about all of that, and you can see that while the United States was essentially trying to have a normal relationship with Russia, that period of normal relations has ended. It's now all-out war against Russia. It's an economic war. It's a military war. It's an intelligence war. It's a propaganda war. That means that that era, 1990 to 2022, has indeed come to an end. Brian, you are the co-author of a book called Imperialism in the 21st Century, Updating Lenin's Theory a Century Later. That was released and published seven years ago. You talk about some of this analysis of the previous era in this book, but given that we are entering a new era of global politics, how would you change or amend the book's conclusions? Well, I think that the main reason we published that book is that we took the book of Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Bolsheviks, who published the book Imperialism, the Highest Age of Capitalism in 2016. And that was essentially a polemic by Lenin against the Social Democrats, against social democracy, which, of course, the Bolsheviks had been part of social democracy, but basically leave the Social Democratic International, in essence, at that time, at the beginning of World War I, because the parties of the Second International supported their own ruling classes in the war, just as we see some of the Social Democrats in the United States essentially supporting the efforts of the United States and NATO against Russia right now. They supported their own ruling class, and that, Lenin said, was a violation of the vow, the pledge that they had all made to oppose the coming world war or the coming inter-imperialist war. They met together, the socialists, the social democrats met together at a conference in Basel, Switzerland in, in 1912 
And they said, look, if a war comes, we'll do everything to try to end the war. But if it continues or if we fail to end the war, we vow to each other, the workers of these different countries who make up the Socialist International and their political parties, we vow we won't go and slaughter each other as we used to do in Europe. We're going to adhere to the idea that workers of the world unite, that there are no borders in the workers' struggle, that we are patriotic first and foremost to the class, to the working class, that we won't be dragooned behind the bourgeois elites of our own nationality, our own country, to go kill workers of another nationality. We're going to reject that. And we're going to, in fact, pursue a policy that they called revolutionary defeatism, which is that the socialists of every country would organize for the defeat of their own ruling class in the war because they said our real enemies are at home. The real enemies of the working class in France or Germany or the UK or in Russia, our enemies are at home. And so we pledge to pursue a policy of international solidarity based on anti-imperialism and based on revolutionary defeatism. But the war started and most of the socialists, the great majority, uh, capitulated and they ended up supporting the war. You know, at the beginning of a war, like what we see now in the United States, the war fever is very great. The hysteria, the propaganda, the nonstop media sensational attention that you know, makes it clear that every bomb that is dropped in Ukraine was a Russian bomb. Every person who died was a victim of Russia, that there are no victims of the Ukrainian military or the Azov battalion, the Nazis, that, you know, it's this one-sided propaganda. And propaganda accompanies every war, of course, and all sides engage in propaganda. But under the sort of pressure of the propaganda, it's not the only reason, but under certainly the pressure is very great to go along with the targeted demonized enemy. And if you don't, you know, you have to watch what you say because you're going to be evicted from spaces and places that you thought were friendly before. Anyway, we know about that. We know about that kind of social pressure. And they all capitulated to it at the beginning of World War, or almost all of them, not all of them. So Lenin wrote this book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, where he analyzes what caused the war? Were some of the imperialists more progressive than others? Were the German imperialists more progressive, say, than the czarist Russian establishment because czarism was a monarchy and the Germans had moved past that? He went through and analyzed all of these different reasons or rationales for the war. And he says, look, the war in its essence is a manifestation of a new stage of capitalism. He calls it the highest stage. And he characterizes the fundamental features of this stage as one, that finance capital or bank capital has become dominant over industrial capital, that there's a concentration of monopoly production, that monopolies have basically dominated over the what had been the smaller capitalists earlier, that they either swallowed them up or made them bankrupt, that there was monopoly capitalism in finance and in industry. So these small concentrated centers of capitalist power were you know, basically dictating the policies of all of the different governments. And each and every one of those capitalist ruling classes wanted to expand. And they wanted to expand into other parts of the world. They wanted bigger market share. But the entire world had already been colonized or semi-colonized or divided into spheres of influence by the different imperialists, so there, there was no more room. The world was already completely occupied, so to speak. And so the only way to get a larger market share was to take from the market share of the other capitalists. So the imperialists, in essence, Lenin says in this book, go to war against each other because monopoly capitalism, which is an inherently expansionist economic order, has militarized each of the countries, that there's no place left to colonize because colonization has become global. It's been a f the full characteristic feature of modern capitalism, not simply the policy of the, of the Dutch or the Spanish or the British, as it had been, say, in the 16th century. And so he says, look, all of the imperialist powers, there are differences in their form of government, but they're all basically essentially predatory. They're all basically trying to expand and are fighting for the same purposes and that the workers of the world need to reject 
all of the appeals of the different imperialists. And by so doing, you stay true to the pledge made at the Basel Congress to promote internationalism and solidarity between the different parties of the world. So he wrote that book. And we thought, and we've always thought, this book has so much to offer. It's so important. It really explains why war becomes an inevitable feature of modern life, modern society, that it's not simply the mistakes of this or that politician or the the hawks against the doves, but it's an organic feature of capitalism. So we wanted to reproduce Lenin's book, but we also were making the point that things have changed since 1916. The colonies have become independent formally, that the existing pre-World War I empires they came to an end, in essence, either at the time of the end of World War I or certainly by the end of World War II. But there were other features of his analysis, especially about monopoly domination within the capitalist system and its inherent expansionist drive that were completely valid, and also the ability of imperialism to continually expand was basically blocked by the existence of the socialist camp that arose, as I talked about earlier, after 1945. And so imperialism was in a way contained. Imperialism in a way was frustrated. It was in a way a system that demanded and required expansion, but there wasn't very many places to go. And so as a consequence, capitalism worked tirelessly for decades to carry out regime change using every available means to subvert the socialist project in the different countries, economic, military, diplomatic pressure, propaganda, covert operations, American soft power. Every conceivable tactic was used to weaken the regimes that had basically taken two-fifths of the world's planet and put it off limits to imperialist exploitation. So we talked about that in the book. And again, as you mentioned, this book came out seven years ago. And we also analyzed in the book how after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the dissolution of the socialist camp, there was the period of unipolar domination or the the seeking of unipolar domination by the United States. So we sort of ended the story there. But if we were to write the book again today, we would have to make the argument that the unipolar era has come to an end with the Russia, or at least that's what Russia is attempting to do. And other countries, especially in the so-called third world, sort of see it that way. But we don't know whether or not Russia will succeed. We don't know whether the Putin government will succeed. Certainly the method chosen by Russia to fight against American domination in Eastern Europe is a tactic that one, may not succeed, and two, at least in the short term, has strengthened, not weakened the position of U.S. imperialism. So it's impossible to know what things will be like in a year or two years. We don't know. We can't tell. A lot will depend on what what happens on the battlefield. But for us as socialists, like people who admired Lenin and looked at the Bolsheviks and tried to learn the lesson of that, We're not following Vladimir Putin. We're not following the Russian bourgeois government. We're not saying that kind of multipolarity is the answer to unipolarity because the Russian government doesn't have a forward-facing vision about how to make the world a more just place. I mean, the Bolsheviks and the socialists were trying to create a better world, a different world. The idea that a better world was possible. The Russian government's motivations are very narrow. They're understandable and they're legitimate in one sense, one very important sense, in that they don't want the United States and the Western imperialists to use Ukraine as a staging ground so as to contain Russia in such a way that will always make Russia very, very vulnerable to the United States at the moment and just after the United States adopted major power conflict as its primary priority or military doctrine that was done in 2018, where clearly the U.S. was preparing and is preparing for war with Russia and China, the Russians 
did not want the United States to use Ukraine, which has a 1,200-mile-long border with Russia, as a staging ground for its major power conflict initiative against Russia. So that's legitimate. I mean, that's a legitimate national security concern. And our position was the U.S., if it really wanted peace, should come to the negotiating table and agree that Ukraine should be neutral. But that's different than thinking that the Russian military invasion offers some sort of war for national liberation or a better world or a newer world. No, it's a use of extreme military force to secure its borders. And we you know, we're very unhappy about it because not only is there death and destruction in Ukraine and for Russian soldiers, but it breaks up in such an important way the solidarity that had been arduously forged under very complex circumstances by the government and the political parties in the Soviet Union, including the party both in Russia and in Ukraine from the earlier epoch. So the idea that Ukrainians and Russians are shooting each other, killing each other, for socialists who look to the Soviet Union and look to the Bolsheviks earlier, that's a great tragedy. Brian, I want to pick up on a point that you just made a few minutes ago, and I I want to talk about the United States behavior and the United States role in this conflict. In 2018, Trump and the Pentagon announced a new U.S. military doctrine for the U.S., And you've made the point in the past that the Ukraine war exemplifies this new doctrine. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How does it exemplify this new doctrine? Yeah, I think that when the Pentagon announces that the war on terror, which was the official military priority and doctrine, war on terror, top priority from 2001 until 2018, suddenly is no longer the doctrine and it's replaced with major power conflict. And that comes seven years after Obama announced the, quote, pivot to Asia, meaning directing the U.S. military towards China. And after the four years after the U.S. staged or certainly supported and congratulated the fascist-led coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014, that represented a fundamental decision and it oddly didn't provoke any debate. There were no doves and hawks in all of this. Congress just went along with it. There was no debate in the media. It was much more of a sort of totalitarian orientation or presentation than anything that was happening during the Cold War. I mean, during the Cold War, at least by 1960, the liberals were promoting peace with Russia. Now the Pentagon says we're promoting war with Russia and China. And where were the liberals? Where were the liberals in Congress? There wasn't a peep made out of it. I mean, You know, even the most liberal wing of the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders or the squad, they would talk about health care and affordable housing, but they didn't challenge this fundamentally reactionary and dangerous reorientation of foreign policy to prepare the country for major power conflict. It was kind of like, ho hum, mm -hmm. yeah, we're getting ready for major power conflict, which can only mean war with Russia and China. And those both of those countries are nuclear powers. So it's so weird and such a sign of the death of American bourgeois liberalism that liberalism accepted this thesis by the Pentagon, by the generals and by the military industrial complex with barely a peep. But for Russia and for China, they heard that, they looked at that, they saw what the US is then doing, both in reorganizing the military, what weapons are being purchased, what kind of war games are being fought out, the new efforts by the U.S. to create first island nations in the Pacific that could contain China, set up advanced missile sites, and all of these islands right outside of China, right outside of China's territorial waters. And the U.S. was doing the same thing with the relentless move towards the east, meaning NATO's move to the east, where the U.S. basically puts U.S. military operations further and further to the east. And now it will be, and that was the plan to put it right up on Russia's border. So the U.S. is containing Russia and containing China. And containment, as I've said a couple of times recently, it's not like trying to stop necessarily someone's forward progress. It could be like trying to put somebody or an entity into a container where you can't move. You have no flexibility. You can't get out. You're in a corner or in a container. And that's what the U.S. is doing 
with Russia. Russia decided to strike first by invading Ukraine in order to get out of the container. Obviously, that was Putin's thinking or the Russian military's thinking. I don't know if that will turn out to be true. It doesn't appear to me to be true, but of course, we don't know what's coming. But yeah, the military doctrine and it's Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, the empire is speaking with one voice on this. And that's why Ukraine has blown up. I mean, that's why the U.S. absolutely 100% refused to negotiate with Russia when Russia said, look, we mean it. We're drawing red lines. You have to acknowledge our security concerns. And the U.S. said, that's a non-starter. You can't tell us who can be in NATO. You can't tell Ukraine whether it can or cannot be in NATO. That's our decision. That's Ukraine's decision. You, Russia, you have no voice in this decision, meaning we're going to put missiles on your border. And so then Russia decides, okay, this is going to happen and we have to prevent it from happening. I think their military thinking was that Ukraine would collapse quickly and that they would have won a quick victory. Obviously, uh, they were unprepared for the resistance and also the fact that the United States is, I think, in all ways coordinating the Ukrainian military operation. The Ukrainians are proxies for an American war that's taking place on their territory, and it's directed against Russia. Again, Ukrainians are a pawn. Maybe despite everything you just laid out, maybe despite the intense rhetoric and the intense warmongering and the the reorientation towards major power conflict by the United States, for the last 10 years or even more than that, many people on the left have argued that the United States is declining, that it's an empire in decline. Do you think that that's true? Do you think that there are elements of that are true? What's your view on that? Yes. I mean, the U.S. was obviously an empire in decline, but it was an empire in decline in the 1970s as well. You know, they had U.S. had lost in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Revolution was sweeping Central America. The Iranian Revolution happened in 19. 19- 79. There was the Afghan revolution in 1978, the Portuguese revolution in 74. There was a revolution in Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Angola. The U.S. partner, the South African apartheid regime was starting to be defeated. You know, the U.S. looked like an empire in decline, but obviously it overcame its main adversaries and destroyed the socialist camp And then the U.S. was no longer an empire in decline, and it began trying to exercise U.S. global hegemony. And then it started to slip into decline again, and especially because, well, for a number of reasons, there's too many to go into, but certainly getting bogged down in endless war in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in the Middle East, while China was peacefully developing its own economy, allowed China to become an alternative to America, at least for countries in the third world, for parts of Europe were being integrated into the Belt and Road Initiative. It appeared that the U.S. empire was starting to wane, but that's why I think the United States is trying to do precisely here with the endless expansion of NATO, the big increases in U.S. military budget that's put so much pressure on Russia and China, the containment policy towards China in Asia. I think the U.S., intends to use military means essentially to weaken its adversary so that the empire in decline sort of scenario is again stalled or thwarted or overcome as a consequence of the empire sort of fighting back and being victorious if it can be. That's their perspective. An empire in decline, you know, I argue with people on the left about this, or I have for many years. I said, it's basically a passive position for the left to take. It doesn't mean anything. If an empire is in decline, it could be in decline for 50 years or 30 years, but it also has nuclear weapons. It has immense capacity. If we want to end the empire, we have to have revolutionary change in America. And that instead of just hoping that there's some geostrategic weakening of U.S. imperialism, We have to understand the biggest danger to U.S. imperialism would be the worker struggle and the struggle of the people in the United States. And that's always been true for the past decade. So we have to build that socialist movement, that anti-war movement, that workers movement. But we can't do it by simply 
fighting on domestic issues. When you live in a country which is the belly of the beast, the center of a, a world imperialism and imperialist propaganda has such an impact on political consciousness among the middle class, the working class, the very poor, I mean, all sectors of society, in order to be a vibrant, robust socialist movement, you also have to contend with imperialist chauvinism and racism and propaganda, and you have to do battle with it. Bourgeois propaganda, whether it's at home or on the global front, can't be defeated by itself. It has to be defeated by, in the battle of ideas, by our movement. And so I think that you know, I have great optimism that the movements, the many, many, many progressive and radical and potentially revolutionary movements in the United States will come again quickly because they keep coming one after another and they're becoming more socialist. But we also have to recognize that we can't be opportunist and pretend that we can be socialists on the home front and social imperialists on the global front. Brian, let's let's talk about the home front. Because, as you're saying, it is so inextricably linked. Amazon workers are unionizing right now against all odds. You know, that in incredible victory that we saw in Staten Island. Starbucks workers are also unionizing all over the country. And these union fights are popping up in Starbucks shops all over the country. But there has been a decline in the strength of the unions in the United States for the past three decades or more. Is this new movement that we're seeing with Amazon and Starbucks, does this indicate that the trajectory is shifting U.S. workers have suffered a dismantling of workers' rights. Is a new fightback movement on the horizon? Is that is that what we're seeing? And while you're talking about that, what are the prospects, as you just hinted at, what are the actual prospects, in your opinion, for the socialist movement here in the belly of the beast, as you call it, of world capitalism? Yeah, I do think that the workers' movement is clearly on the upswing. Everything starts in small ways. From small acorns grow great oaks. But you can clearly see the revitalization of the labor movement. The, the Amazon victory in Staten Island, it was so unexpected and it was so unusual because it didn't even come from any of the major unions who are well-resourced. It was a truly grassroots effort. I mean, I'm sure the bosses want to say that's just an anomaly, but this is how change happens in society and throughout history unexpected developments come from below. And hopefully they are not simply an anomaly. They are a, an indicator, a harbinger of what else is going on and what else is very possible. I definitely think the workers' movement in the United States is going to grow. And I think it's a key point of strategic location for socialists. It always has been. The proletarian or working class movement and the, the merger of that movement with socialism is, in fact, the essence of revolutionary politics. And I think that one of the noteworthy elements of this process is that U.S. capitalism expanded a great deal into Eastern Europe, into Central Europe, into Russia, of course, into China. Globalization was basically the export of jobs to other places. So American workers were basically had a gun to their head by the bosses who said, oh, you want to unionize? Well, we can shut this factory down and go to Mexico. Oh, you want to have higher wages? Well, we can just leave here and go to a low wage country. So there was this race to the bottom. Globalization for the proletariat was a race to the bottom. I mean, we're for the globalization of international solidarity and the promotion of global working class solidarity from the first international to the second to the third international, all of these internationals were, you know, featured the idea of global solidarity by the working class, that workers of the world can and must unite. But what's happened is that the, the bosses took advantage of this expansion of the territory on the globe available for capitalist exploitation and drove wages down. And so there was a race to the bottom. But now the new era where there's um, obviously the U.S. is trying to decouple economically from China. The U.S. is now basically evicting Russia from the world economy at the same time as it is very much incorporating Eastern and Central Europe, countries that were formerly socialist, both into an American military alliance, but also basically into a, an important part of the global economy, especially for low-wage work. 
that hasn't gone away. That's not over. But we can see that the world situation is changing. To end where we started, Nicole, Larry Fink said the collapse and the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, the world's largest socialist country, was a great thing for us, meaning for the capitalists, and that you could then export businesses and and hire workers at low wages in all these different countries of the world after the people's basic social insurance programs had been ripped up, the programs they depended on, free healthcare, affordable housing, you know, free childcare, free education, a guaranteed job, which meant no more unemployment. These were the hallmark features of these societies. They were ripped to shreds by the capitalist counter-revolution in, in the case of Russia. And so the imperialists thought, wow, this is globalization. It's great. Look, we can export jobs where we can pay workers one-tenth of what we pay U.S. workers, but we, we expatriate all the profits. So the profits come back not to the countries where the people are doing the work. The profits come back to us, to Wall Street bankers and to the captains of industry, to the billionaires. You know, that was a great period, Larry Fink said, and now it's come to an end. And it's very serious, he said, and we don't know where it's going. Well, we agree with him. It's coming to an end. There are many things that are on the agenda for the socialist movement. We have to be anti-imperialist first and foremost. We can't go along with the demonizing propaganda campaigns of the American imperialists. That doesn't mean we have to support the Russian government's military intervention invasion into Ukraine, but we have to expose imperialism's role in this. It's not acceptable to join the chorus and ignore the role, to fundamentally ignore the role of U.S. imperialism. U.S. workers have to understand that the government that speaks in their name, the so-called American government, the so-called U.S. government, they're responsible for the war in Ukraine. They wanted it to happen. It is happening. They're happy about it. And they're happy about expanding the U.S. military budget. At the same time, they're saying, look, we just don't have the money for expanded Medicaid. We just don't have the money for affordable health care or affordable housing. These monies just aren't available to us. While they're going to actually, over the next few years, double the U.S. military budget to make it you know, 20 or 30 times larger than the next country in line. By the way, the United States military budget dwarfs Russia's military budget. The United States spends $800 billion each year on war, on defense, so to speak. The Russians spend $60 billion, so less than 10% of what the U.S. spends. So for the socialist movement in the United States, we have to organize the workers. It's happening. Workers are starting to move. Capitalism does have an inability to endlessly expand. We have to do that kind of work. We have to fight against racism and misogyny and against bigotry and oppression that's being promoted against the LGBT community. We have to stand with immigrant workers and raise up the slogan that the worker struggle has no borders. We want to give full rights to the undocumented. We have to do those things. We have to stand with the incarcerated population. It's a new form of Jim Crow. It is an extension of American slavery. It's unconscionable. It's disgusting. It's what America, the American bourgeoisie has in mind for a big section of the U.S., the youth of the U.S. working class. We have to do all of those things and at the same time uphold the banner of international solidarity and make it clear that we're fighting on the home front, but we're not fighting only on home front issues. We have to have a holistic, complete program to make socialism not only revive, but victorious. And of course, the crises of capitalism are existential. They're multiple, they're cascading, endless war, climate catastrophe, the elimination of most of the jobs that we now know of through artificial intelligence. There will be revolutionary crises or crises that cause revolutionary opportunities in the United States. The socialist movement must be able to meet the challenge. Is it hard? Yes. Can we do it? Yes, again. I couldn't agree more, Brian. It's absolutely right. We've got to stand up and fight. Thanks so much. We'll continue this conversation in more depth at our monthly seminar for patrons on Monday, April 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern, which is 5 Pacific. Make sure you subscribe and support our show on Patreon and register for the seminar there. You can send in your questions there. And then once you subscribe, you'll also have access to the 14 previous seminars that provide a highly valuable archive of political information and perspective 
a perspective shaped by a highly refined socialist worldview on events as they unfolded, including, of course, the war on Ukraine, but also the pullout of troops from Afghanistan, the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin, the cop who kneeled on George Floyd's neck until he died, the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, and much, much more. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.